0: You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast.
1: I used to always, whenever I was little, for some reason, I used to think that you would be a good governor. Oh, yeah? You thought I would be a good governor? You don't remember talking about that? Uh, no. (laughs) No. Well, whenever I was really young, like sometimes we would uh, drive to Dallas to go to the Stars games. Okay, right? we, right. we still do that. But yep. whenever I was little, you would have talk radio on, and that was my yeah. only experience or exposure to politics. And so I would ask you questions like, "Oh man, you know, why is uh, w- what did he what is he talking about about the Federal Reserve or whatever it was? You know that they were that they were discussing on the radio show." And so we would have these conversations about things, about current mm-hmm. events and about politics. And for a few years, you know, mostly elementary, middle school, it was like that was my only exposure to politics. And I thought you were just, I thought you knew everything. Well, and then, then I, I grew up. <laughs>
2: and then you learned better, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, I always, I was in, uh, the, my closest to that was being in student senate at Texas a And the, uh, the experience of the legislative process, even though that was a student organization, uh, was just mind numbing to me. It it moves so slow. There were so many. <laughs> I I think the the process of becoming governor would just be such a uh, such an ass whipping that that I think God bless the people who are cut out to go into politics and move up. Uh, you know, but there's a lot of uh administrative there's a lot of relationship uh, skills that I I just don't think I have I, I think most people don't have uh, but it's it's really tough so you know God bless the people who who do and have enough passion to uh, take those skills and use them for public service and so it's but it's I'm gonna, a I'm gonna
1: quote that on our website or well it's it'll be more of a paraphrase but I'm gonna say I would be governor but it's just not fun enough, Sean Smith.
2: <laughs> what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, I could I could run this place, but nah, <laughs> <laughs> nah.
1: You got other things to do. Yeah, the it's interesting the decision making process for for <laughs> legislatively is uh, is long and arduous.
2: Oh, and just the just the horse trading that goes on and just the uh, political calculus of, you know, if we give on this, we can take on this or, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to vote for this, but uh, you know, so it doesn't blow back on me or, you know, all of that stuff just uh, doesn't feel good to me. <laughs> I just It just, you know, it just runs against uh, some of my core. I just, I could not do it.
1: It's uh yeah it's not it's not exactly the political arena is not known for its authenticity but speaking of authenticity um we got to talk to someone who's very authentic today and that is Kendall Claus and you actually have or first met Kendall what thirty yeah you know
2: I I sent I sent Kendall a picture this morning uh and I went and found it from like you know thirty years ago he and I standing out in front of the Alamo. Uh, and so I, I sent him that picture this morning. He was like, wow, look at me. I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> how, so
1: Kendall is currently running for the Republican in the Republican primary race for Minnesota's governor. Um, how did you know, how, how did you and Kendall meet?
2: So he and I both worked for, uh, American express at the time, uh, that had a subsidiary company, uh, financial planning called IDS. And, uh, so he and I were both, uh, there at the same time starting out our careers. He moved on and, and, uh, moved into the medical field after that, but, uh, I, I stayed in financial advisory services and, uh, but, uh, but yeah, he, he and I were friends and, and, uh, uh, but, you know, haven't, haven't talked to each other a lot in the past, uh, you know, several years up until recently.
1: Well, yeah. As soon as you found out he was running for governor, you wanted to cash in
2: on all those favors. Well, no, no. It's it's <laughs> funny. I was I was watching. Yeah, I was I was watching. Hey, man, now that new you have some power,
1: remember that one time I bought you lunch in yeah. San Antonio at the conference?
2: I was I was watching. We reconnected because years ago. This this tells you how long ago it was. Uh, I had uh, Bill O'Reilly on right on on TV, and it was just I was on at the house, and I was I was watching that. And uh this is pre sex scandal, Bill O'Reilly, right? The, uh, obvious obviously. <laughs> okay,
1: just clarifying, he's still out there. I mean, I, I, no, wait, is he? Yeah, he has some show on like, you know, American oh. Patriot Hardcore oh. Conservative News oh, man, dot com.
2: Yeah. Okay. So this this is when uh he was on he was on Fox. And uh so he he reads a letter from Kendall Qualls. And I'm like, well, that that has got to be my friend Kendall. That, that, there can't be a lot of guys named Kendall Qualls out there, uh, so I I uh, reached out to him and said, hey man, you know, I saw you see, <laughs> saw you know O'Reilly, so we reconnected. But that was that was a while back. But uh, that's how that's how that came. And I and I've seen him on uh, different news shows recently, talking about things that he's passionate around. He ran for Congress, but uh, around. Uh, you know, education issues, critical race theory, minimum wage. Uh, he's been out there, uh, you know, voicing his opinion on, on a lot of content.
1: Well, after you and uh, Kendall worked together, he moved on to the medical industry or the healthcare industry, rather, was global vice president marketing at Medtronic and Covidian. Um, in addition to Medtronic, Kendall had increasing roles of responsibility and marketing and sales in both biopharma and med tech companies like Johnson & Johnson. Um, before he entered the healthcare industry, he served as an officer in the U.S. Army, and he was stationed in the U.S. and South Korea. He has an MBA from the University of Michigan, a Master of Arts degree from the University of Oklahoma, and a bachelor's from Cameron University. Today we got to talk to Kendall about decision-making and about his race for the governorship in minnesota i'm sanger smith with sean smith this is decidedly
2: so how did you move into the politics i mean that's a big jump running for uh, for governor of minnesota yeah, you know, you so know what? how did you move from where you were into that
3: What's amazing? God plans plans for you. You don't even know it when it's even like He's orchestrating it thirty years, you know, previously. Obviously, you know my 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 experience marketing and sales and in the business community in the healthcare industry. Well, I, I left Medtronic, went to a startup um, in healthcare here in Minnesota, and we had got the startup into the pilot phase with a major insurance company and another healthcare plan, and it was kind of worked, working its way through the pilot and. And Ilhan Omar's district is right next to mine. Okay. And, you know, what? as you know, I served in the military. My, my father served. And the things that she was saying just, it, it, for, first of all, it was dangerous. But when she compared ISIS and al-Qaeda to, to uh, the U.S. Army, I said, you know what? Uh, someone's got to do something. I, I don't see leaders stepping up to the plate. And I felt obligated, to be honest with you, to uh, to do something. So um, I contacted the local G- uh, GOP, said, I'll speak for you anywhere in the state if you want. And I eventually spoke to one of the leaders of the House, and he, he invited me to, uh, to be a candidate, and I accepted.
1: So you've got to be a really good speaker, I would imagine, to go from, hey, I'm just some guy, to, uh, hey, would you like to run? <laughs>
3: Well, you know, it's it's interesting. So over the course of my career, um, I've been on the stage all the time in front of the sales organization, the marketing organization, corporate sure. leaders. You know, the presidents and of of major companies, and it's prepared me to do this. So it's it's really kind of secondhand, and um, I've and it's been I've gotten people to say, you know what, you've missed your calling, and to the point where I am now, it's it's really secondhand for me.
2: How did you go through? to decide to run for
3: governor? Not, not why did you run for governor, what caused you to sure, run for true. governor? So it's two-pronged. Number one, so Sean, when you and I met, I had just uh, gotten out of the army and worked, yeah. earned uh, two master's degree, but you didn't know my background. So I came from literally nothing. My, um, my parents divorced, even when my dad came back from the Vietnam War. I, um, we, we moved from Fort Campbell, Kentucky to Harlem, New York in the late 1960s, early 70s. It was the epicenter for gangs, drugs, violence, and everything else. I was there from first grade to fifth grade, and I saw how deprived you know, mankind can be in, that, in the inner cities. My mom couldn't handle all five of us by herself, so my father came and got me and my younger brother to live with him in Oklahoma. And he was in a trailer park, because that's all he could afford. So that, that was my start in life. And the fact that I could earn an education serve our country in the Army, get an advanced, you know, get an you know, undergrad, graduate degree, all that, and then go and work and for a company like, for example, like IDS. I, when, I, when I left people's homes and I had clients and they gave me a check for financial planning for $300, no one in my family ever believed that a black man could walk into a white man's house and leave with a $300 check and planning for their financial future. That didn't even come into their mindset. So what, what I've learned over the course of this 30 years is that how great this country is and how the people of this country are good-hearted people and that the narratives that we hear often are our lies. And I felt obligated to step forward and represent the country for what it is based on, on all the people that helped me in my, my personal and my professional career. It, it was a leadership decision Of a patriot that loves his country, and it it sounds hokey, sounds kind of boy scoutish, but you know this country was saved, but not by career politicians, by Harvard, Princeton, Yale lawyers. It was saved by regular Americans that love the country.
1: Yeah, making a decision to live up to, to kind of answer the call of leadership, I think is is really hard. Right? There's a, it's oftentimes really unrewarding and being a politician seems like the least rewarding version of leadership that you could possibly receive. As far as public image, um, as far as the getting people to say thank you, most leaders don't get told thank you ever. Uh, politicians rarely get told thank you. Um, some people would argue they rarely the deserve opposite. it. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> so I, I would imagine that making that decision – what was really, really, uh, had to be very thoughtful.
3: Well, it was. So the other half of this is my Christian faith. So it's funny. I I became a Christian when I was 27 years old in Dallas when I was uh, there working with you guys. And someone had invited me to church. I didn't want to go because many of the churches that I grew up in was, you know, it was ceremonial more than anything. Ceremonial and social. But it was uh, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, Tony Evans was the pastor, and oh, it literally yeah, I mean. changed it literally changed my life. So it was a, our faith decision as well, if, if um, this was a God-led decision for me and my wife. And so it was the, one of those other things too, is like walk in obedience. And for those that are the Christians, they understand it. For those that don't, they'll think it's pretty a wacky decision. But you, you know when you walk in obedience and you do those things, it's not. It's going to come with hard knocks, so it's something I'm used to.
1: So your candidacy seems to be centered around um, several several different key positions, and 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 I don't attempt to reduce your candidacy only to these positions, but I, I, I see kind of a theme, right? You you have some strong opinions on minimum wage. Uh, you have some strong opinions on critical race theory, and those are obviously more, more so with critical race theory, those are very hot topics now. And it seems to me that both of them stem from a way that we as individuals make decisions, right? We make decisions as individuals in how we accept critical race theory as far as like how we view the world from the very beginning. From how What is our worldview? How are we going to decide to operate within this world? What's your advice to Americans or, or Minnesotans on – how to defeat bad decision-making with respect to those policy positions that you've taken a hard stance on.
3: Sure. So, so these, the, actually your show is a really good one because oftentimes people make decisions unconsciously. They don't, they don't even realize how many decisions they're making that affect their choice right. in life. And, they, and whether they're, even if they're unconsciously not making a the decision, they just going with the flow of their neighbors, their friends, and and that type of thing, which I've been swimming upstream my entire life so this has kind of come natural to me uh, you know the, the our platform is really around three things number one we need to return our city and our communities back to the safety that what Forbes magazine called Minnesota and the Twin Cities the safest city in the country we were never a Detroit we were never a, a Chicago and now uh, we, we have record carjackings record crime and and it never used to be this way so that's one, it's, 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 so it's a humanity issue more than it is a political one. The second one around, around finances, we, we rank in the top third in the country on corporate and personal taxes. Last year, we had a record number of Minnesotans leave the state, and it's not just because of the crime, it was because of financial reasons. Now, my political opponents will say, well, baby boomers are getting, you know, it's the peak of the baby boomers and they're retiring and they're leaving. Well, that's disingenuous. You know, that age spans, you know, more than just retirees. And then the third one really is around to your point about critical race theory and education. Uh, we used to, even if you did not come from a family of means, you had a pathway in this country if you had a solid education. And that's being altered. Even in some of our best schools, our, our test scores, standardized test scores, are stagnant or declining in our state. So if anything, all three of those things are more things that are bread and butter, what Minnesotans care about, not just Republicans and Democrats.
2: What do you think is gonna be the hardest decision you're gonna be faced with?
3: Well, you know, my my values are pretty locked and set. Um, you know, again, this is less to do with politics. I, if it, When it comes to um, making a decision on, it was, like for for example, we we just had a shooting here police shooting, uh, just this week, just a few days ago. They had a no knock warrant. They, the, uh, the police went in and they were, they woke up a guy that was sleeping on a couch and he had a gun in his hand. It wasn't po- It wasn't pointed toward them yet, but I don't know if you need to wait for it to be pointed towards you, but the, he wasn't the subject of the warrant. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And again, we don't know this guy's background. Those type of situations where you have to, you have to say, you know what, it's you can't fault the police for the shooting. You don't, you don't want to wait until he turns the gun on someone and then shoots, and then you can fire back. By that, by that time, you have a, someone that's that's killed on both sides, and it's it's one of these situations. What, what do you, what do we tell our communities? You know what? At the end of the day, one of the things I'm big about is in the black community, we've gone from eighty percent two parent families to 80% fatherless homes in my lifetime. We need to start having a conversation in the community because we're not socializing our kids to the norms of society, the rules of society. And they're getting the brunt of it. The kids are getting the brunt of it in schools and in our society. And these confrontations with police, those are going to be some tough questions, some tough answers and, and tough things that I'm going to have to face. But I think it's time. I think it's time in our, in our community that we're ready for these, to have these kind of tough time conversations.
1: Yeah, the police shooting issue is a really tricky one because we'll see in, um, you know, now with the rise of the internet and everyone's got a phone or a camera in their pocket, we, we can now have eyes in a lot of different scenarios or a lot of different situations that even just 10 years ago weren't accessible to the average American. And the, the tricky part of it is that sometimes we we're led to believe that some of these shootings are are one story and they turn out not to be. And, and that happened in, in Ferguson, Missouri, where we're led to believe this cop is a, a violent murderer and turns out it was the complete opposite. And then sometimes we see stories where it turns out maybe the cop did make a really big mistake. Like here in Fort Worth, a Tatiana Jefferson was shot inside her own bedroom from a cop who broke into her went or not didn't break in, but went into her backyard and wasn't even supposed to be there. So there there's there's two completely different scenarios and I think we lumped them all into into one, but it's a really tricky spot that we're asking the police officers to be to make decisions in that moment. And it seems like a lot of times we don't recognize the difficulty of the decision that a citizen is being forced to make too. And I'm not super familiar with the the shooting that happened recently in your area, but do you think that that can be solved by the family structure that you're alluding to, or or at least how much of it do you think could be solved by that?
3: Well, there's, there's two scenarios. so so the fa- family structure one, but the other one is, you know we have to get the public to understand, even when we have these videos, is that we don't adjudicate, decisions like this in the moment. We have a process that works. And we have to be patient enough to have the um, emotional intelligence and emotional capacity to withhold judgment until we get all the facts. And then let the and let the process work through itself. Um, it does work. Sometimes it's very slow. We want it to work faster. But our system does work and we, and we can't adjudicate it on on a one segment to your point of a video club.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really tough. Right. It, it's I, I, every time those stories come out, it, it seems like everybody's already made a decision on how they will um, how they're going to interpret it. And people kind of get further and further to each extreme. Some people say, oh, obviously, I've got all the information. The cop is evil or obviously I've already got all the information. The cop was completely in the right. And and that it seems really dangerous to make such quick decisions. About how to interpret these very complex situations.
2: Agreed. So, so what do you do in in your position as as governor to to drive up intact family percentages in, in different communities to to deal with issues like you talked about around you know really cultural issues. I, I would say the CRT, the education the, those fall to cultural issues. The the tendency to jump to one conclusion on a, uh, a police and civilian interaction, those seem to be things that are going to be hard to legislate.
3: You're absolutely right, Sean. You know, th- this is something that's um, interesting. So over the course of my career, and, and especially starting in the military, this is what leadership influence is called. Okay? You don't need a title to have leadership influence in your culture. And and what the the office of governor allows someone to do is yes, manage things through legislature, but also leadership influence. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, there, there, we have one, one president that was actually baptized in the Christian faith while he was served in office. He had a significant influence in, in, the, in the country, almost unconsciously, by just leading by example of his faith. And that was Dwight D. Eisenhower, commanded the largest army known mankind ever in history. Ten days into his first administration, at that time that he entered office, I think 50 percent of the population was attended church on a regular basis. When he left office, we had the very first um, national prayer breakfast, and God we trust was put on currency on on, on some most of all of our currency. We had the um, pledge of allegiance was incorporated uh, un, uh, under uh, under God. Yeah, yeah is all all those things and 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 after that after you set nearly 70% of the country now was attending church on a regular basis now were they all you know behaving in that certain way but it it changed influence and you know, without one legislation and the 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 thing i want to focus on especially in the black community is that in my lifetime we've never focused on getting getting it back this whole idea of the intact nuclear family we had nothing during the pre-Civil war, civil Rights era, we had nothing, but we had faith, family, and education. And that sustained us through the worst of times, and it produced a lot of very you know, influential and, and, and successful people. And we can get that core nature back without any legislation. That's cultural decisions and rooted in faith, family, and education. One of the things we have to do, though, and we can do this legislatively, is we don't incentivize um, fatherless homes. We're financially incentivizing that, and we're also de-incentivizing marriage across the board, regardless of race. Uh, we're doing this at the federal level and at, and at the state.
1: Thank you so much, Kendall. Um, I, I really appreciate your insight, and I feel like I, I learned a new perspective today. Where can people from the state of Minnesota and from the rest of the country, where can they connect with your campaign and hear more about what you've decided to stand for?
3: Sure. The uh, website is KQ4Minnesota, for for Minnesota. so kq KQFORMN dot
1: Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes and and make sure that all of the listeners can can find a way to connect. Um, again, thank you so much. I know we had limited time this morning, so thank you for making time on a Sunday morning for us. My biggest learning in talking to Kendall is something that he didn't even say outright, but was. Uh, maybe implied. I don't know. Maybe I just interpreted it this way. But the impact of groupthink, uh, community beliefs, and one's desire to conform and be accepted by the community are going to have a huge impact on an individual's decision making. And that can be a lot of different issues. The decision to um, raise a family, a decision to go to college, decision on it, even in some communities what type of job to have, what type of career to pursue. All of that is highly influenced by community beliefs, and I think it's important to not simply accept those community beliefs for exactly what they are without question, but also not completely reject them just out of a desire to be a rebel and and an individualist. So it's important to make those decisions as an individual, but understand first, why the community believes this? no I,
2: I think you're exactly right I, I think you know the uh you and i have talked about that concept of chesterton's fence where you, you you're out in the field you come across this fence and you want to figure out uh you know what should i do with this and so one tendency is to just rip it out and pull it down i don't know why this fence fences here get it out of here but it's important to figure out well, why was it put there in the first place and so when you talk about community standards and he you know when i was asking him what was leading him to uh run for governor you know he, he talked about things that were primarily cultural issues uh and and so my question to him was about you know how do you legislate back in cultural issues that was around influence and i think so i, th- I think the task is huge and i think there's been a lot of uh separation from historical community standards and it's it's going to be tough to get those back and so I think that's, he's, he's fighting a tough, a tough fight to, uh, to, to regain some of those uh, standards uh, that, that have been lost.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at DecidedlyPodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Decidedly Podcast. To be notified when new episodes are released, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, drop us a five-star review because it helps more people defeat bad decision-making right alongside you. For show notes, decision-making insights, more episodes, and links to resources mentioned in this episode, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com. If you'd like us to help you make a decision, leave us a message at decidedlypodcast.com slash decision for a chance to have your question featured in an upcoming episode. For more decision-making content, check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Decidedly Podcast. As always, thanks for listening. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.